When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to what we'll call a special edition of our Buckeye Talk podcast here on Cleveland.com. I'm Bill Landis, one-third of our Ohio State coverage team. And if you've been paying attention this week, uh, you might have noticed that we've been running a series exploring Ohio State as the most indestructible team in college football. And by that, we mean Ohio State has had an innate ability for nearly a century uh, of avoiding the bottom. Ohio State has not had back-to-back losing seasons since the 1920s. Meanwhile, power programs, traditional power programs all across the country, Alabama, Michigan, Texas, uh, UNC, USC, excuse me, have been down. Uh, So we explored that as part of our series, talking with beat writers who cover those teams, trying to find out what went wrong at those programs and what Ohio State can learn. Uh, We're calling this podcast How to Ruin Your College Football Program, which I know probably sounds like a lot of doom and gloom to Buckeyes fans who don't want to entertain such a thought, uh, but there's good information in here uh, from the writers that we talked to, and they are uh, John U. Bacon, a New York Times bestselling author uh, who's well-versed in Michigan football, has written several books on the Wolverines and the Big Ten. Uh, we talked with Kirk Bowles, who's a columnist from Austin, Texas, the Austin American statesman who's been covering the Longhorns since the 1970s. Kevin Skarbinski, another long-tenured columnist from Alabama, works for AL.com and AL Media Group. Uh, who's been covering the Crimson Tide uh, for several years. And then finally, Ari Wasserman talked with Chris Dufresne, former writer from the LA Times, who now runs his own website called TMGCollegeSports.com. And Chris was a longtime writer covering USC uh, in its heyday with Pete Carroll and was around too when when things started going south with NCAA sanctions and all that. Uh, So there's a lot in here, uh, a lot of different ways that these programs went from the top to the bottom. And there's a lot in here that Ohio State fans can learn and lessons for the Buckeyes to learn, too, as, as they try to stay atop college football and avoid bottoming out. So uh, take a listen and see what you think about uh, what these guys had to say and think to yourself whether or not this could ever happen to Ohio State. As we begin our conversation about college football programs around the country who have taken a downturn and whether or not that could happen with Ohio State, uh, we'll start with, with Michigan, a um, program probably most familiar to Ohio State fans, and, and to learn about the Wolverines we're joined by John U. Bacon, New York Times bestselling author. Uh, has written several books on Michigan football, uh, among other things. So he's the perfect man to talk to uh, about an inside look on the Michigan football program. John, I appreciate you taking some time to talk to us. Bill, my pleasure. So uh, when we're talking about Michigan and as it relates to this topic, uh, I think we're really talking about uh, the Rich Rodriguez years and the Brady Hoke years. Um, so, so fairly recent uh, developments uh, up in Ann Arbor. Um, so we'll start with Rich Rodriguez, uh, who took over for Lloyd Carr. Lloyd Carr, certainly a very successful tenure in Michigan, won a national championship, some excellent seasons, Big Ten championships. Um, Rich Rodriguez comes in and his first year goes three and nine. And correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that was their first non-bowl season since 1975, I believe. Um, 1974. Yeah. 1974, okay, yeah. And the reason they didn't go into 74, of course, those are the rules. So, right. <laughs> uh, we have to go back to 60s. 68, I think, until this would not have gone on its own uh, merits. And that's back when we had like 10 bowl games, too. So that's, that was a big shock for Ann Arbor, to say the least. 
So the, there, there's sort of four categories that we're exploring here. Um, one of them is, is that could lead to a downturn for a major program. One of them is sanctions, which doesn't really apply to Michigan. Um, there was some NCAA stuff with Rich Rodriguez, but nothing that led to really crippling sanctions. Um, right. So we'll start with a, a different topic, which is um, making bad hires. And in the, in the end, um, as you look back on the, on the tenure of Rich Rodriguez and the three years he had, two of those losing seasons, was he just the wrong guy to bring in at that time? Uh, what I've kind of come to, Bill, is thinking about that for the book three and out, which I've inside that program for those three years with Rich Rodriguez and his staff. And it was not written by them, of course, written by me um, as objectively as I could. Um, is that you, you tend to think of uh, getting a new coach in a new program. You got a hot shot coach, you got a hot shot program, be it Alabama, Ohio State, Michigan, whatever. Uh, think of it like basically plugging in a toaster, you know, plugging the toaster, the toaster works, the toast pops up. It is not that simple at all. What I discovered through that process is it's more akin to a heart transplant. You get the right size heart, the right blood type. Patients, the surgeons, everyone else has got to be their part to make sure that the body does not reject that heart and it works, you know, as it should. And at Michigan, during the Rich Rod years, none of that happened. Uh, the bridges that were built on either side, I don't think Rich understood going into it that you need to reach out to the loyal folks and go to the press conferences and so on. Uh, perhaps more importantly, in my opinion, uh, Michigan did not provide the support that uh, Rich needed to win over the Letterman. Uh, and others that you had to have on your side. So I think both sides went the less than that. And when Rich got to Arizona, his press conference was carefully scripted. He had to bear down, which is their Bill Blue or Bill Bucks. Um, and did a great job in Tucson, and they love him there. And I think when Hope came on to Michigan, Michigan, whatever else was going to happen with Hope, it's not going to be due to a lack of support from the fan base, the Letterman, the former coaches, you name it. He had complete and total support. Uh, of the Michigan community. So uh, his loss for his own, but Michigan learned a lesson, but that was a, a painful lesson for Michigan fans, at least. So one of the things, uh, one of the programs we're exploring you mentioned was, was Alabama, and uh, I had a conversation with a columnist who covered the Crimson Tide, and he said that Alabama fall, fell into a, a mindset where they basically had to hire someone who had ties to Bear Bryant. And if that guy didn't have ties to Bear Bryant, he shouldn't have been coaching at Alabama. Ultimately, that was a mistake for them. And I'm just wondering, um, maybe on the flip side of that, you know, there's a, we've heard the term Michigan man a thousand times uh, as it pertains to Rich Rodriguez and Brady Hope. But was it important that Michigan brought in somebody that had those Michigan ties? And maybe if if um, if Rich Rod had had stronger, um, maybe emotional connections to the University of Michigan when he came in, could things maybe have have played out a little differently? Well, that, of course, Bill, is a debate uh, that Ann Arbor has been having for at least a decade now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at it two ways, and I think that, you know, one extreme is that the uh, guy has no ties, of course. The flip side is what they say in Alabama. If you always have to have ties to Bear Bryant, you're kind of handcuffing yourself. So there are two ways to screw that up, I guess. But uh, in Mr. case, you have to say, look, the three greatest coaches in Mr. history are Gilding Yost, Rich Christ, and Bo Schimmickle. They're all outsiders with no ties to Michigan before they got there. So... Now, that's going to be the measure. You're going to miss out on the three. Michigan would not be Michigan without those three coaches. Right. So that's the one thing that Michigan fans, you know, or at least some, might be deluding themselves about that you have to have ties. The flip side is, in all three of those cases, those guys became, if you will, uh, Michigan men very quickly and kind of restamped the brand. Um, and in part, in both cases, I know that he was very close to John Cannon as AD. Uh, he talked to Bump Elliott, his predecessor, quite a bit. Chris Price himself was still alive at that 
lower. So if you're not uh, from the men are born, you better learn it pretty quickly. And Bo got the help that he needed and he accepted it. And, you know, that didn't happen next time around. Uh, in Brady Hope's case, that's a guy who had very strong mission ties as a coach at a car uh, when they won the 97 national title. So that box was checked, but that proved that that itself is also not good enough. So you better be a hell of a coach and ideally with some Michigan ties so you don't have that translation problem. And in Harbaugh, of course, Michigan hit the jackpot from the fans' point of view, obviously. And that's worked out probably better than expected. Um, so it's a tricky thing, though, in college in general. And this is true at Ohio State. It's true at Alabama. And it's not true in the NFL. If Bill Parcells goes to the New England Patriots, the arch rival New York Jets, nobody cares. They're just musical chairs, just different, you know, colors of the same flavor, basically. Mm-hmm. You, you can't imagine Urban Meyer going to coach Michigan or Jim Harbaugh going to coach Ohio State any more than you could, you know, Bowen Woody switching teams. It just, it just does not happen at the college level. I do believe in college football compared to the NFL, the cultures really are distinct and they're strong. And that's not true in the NFL. I mean, uh, Brown himself, of course, the famous coach, went from his namesake Brown to the Bengals. Mm-hmm. Who cared? I don't know who cared. Did anybody? Uh, but you can't do it in college. So, Rich Rod, again, um, maybe that's not a matter of him not being the right man. He didn't get the support that he needed to, to succeed there. And you said Brady Hoke did. Um, so, from the, the transition, I guess, to the Brady Hoke seasons, he starts 11-2 and two and then gets progressively worse from a wins-loss standpoint every year after that uh, until right. until 5-7 and seven, his final year. So was, I, I guess, and to put it bluntly, and maybe it's not fair, was Brady Hoke ready to coach a program like Michigan? You'd have to say in hindsight, probably not. Um, at the time, of course, Michigan fans thought that, to be honest, Bill, I never said it publicly at that time, uh, but I never was convinced. He had 450 at Ball State uh, and San Diego, and he had you know, left in an upswing in both places, you know, strong final seasons, so that was certainly a good sign. Um, but it's not the record that Richard Rodriguez had, you know, couple field goals away from the national title shot, uh, things like this, BCS bowl victories and so on. So I think that uh, Michigan fans are right to grumble at first that uh, Dave Brandon decided to hire Brady up when he could have had less miles and he could have had others as well. Um, so Brady is a truly decent man who got 10 on the Shane Morris thing unfairly and inaccurately. That needs to be said. Players loved him, and they really did look out for them. Uh, but as far as the next to the note guy, this guy did not wear a headset. And I spent a lot of time with Urban Meyer at Ohio State. That man wears a headset. Yeah. <laughs> and that man, I recall when I talked to him with a few of the book, Long, I talked to him before, during, and after the season. He's very generous with me and very forthcoming, if you know. Uh, this is a guy who practiced practice with his coaches before the players who showed up. That is a detail man. And at this level, the guys who succeed, from my observation, are guys like Bowen Woody and Urban and Jim Harbaugh, who are <clears throat> coming over in parking every possible detail you can uh, before practice even begins. And that was not Brady Hope. And that's a man, again, he did not wear a headset, he did not know what play was being called. So that, at this level, you know, hard to succeed in that thing. So, and the, the other area that we wanted to uh, explore in this is, is recruiting, but uh, again, it seemed like even, even Rich Rod, I believe his 2008 class was, was one of the best um, in the country. I think it was a top 10 class, and Brady Hoke certainly recruited well um, at the beginning of his tenure in Michigan, too. So it seems like the, that Michigan never really suffered from a talent standpoint. You can correct me if I'm wrong on that point. 
but um, I, I guess like to, to put a bow on all this, um, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> as you look back at those years, Rich Rod and Brady Hoke, um, what what ultimately was the sort of deciding factor that led to Michigan football having um, what was it three losing seasons in, in seven years? I guess. Yeah, I'd say two things. In some ways, the Rich Rodriguez case was the exact opposite of Brady Hoke. Um, he came in and heralded uh, with no Michigan ties and did not develop them on both sides. Um, his teams were getting better every year, but family was getting more fractious every year. Whereas in Brady Hoke's case, it was the opposite. The family was backing him right away, uh, but the team was getting worse every year. So they're going opposite directions there. I think the biggest knock against uh, Hoke is pretty simple. That his teams did not get better during the season. November tended to be a disaster for him. Uh, and his players did not improve during their careers. I mean, Devin Carter was very poorly served by that uh, coaching staff. And I recall talking to other coaches in the Big Ten at that time, who, whose names I'll leave out of it. Uh, but this is more than one. And they would say, you know, they're saying Devin Carter can't play quarterback. Give him nuts. We'll show you what he can do. So, Brady Hunters did not have the ability to develop individuals nor the team. And they got worse every year. And... One thing you'll find out in the uh, paperback version of Endzone, my latest book on the rise, fall, and return of Michigan football, comes out this fall. I added around 70 pages uh, to the book. That the player said, we thought we were working harder than the hope. We had no, <clears throat> we had no idea. This is Jake Butt from Pickerington, Ontario. I'm sorry. This is Jake Butt from Pickerington, Ohio, of course. Um, home of the Bournes and other stalwart Buckeye families, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, you know, we weren't even close to working hard enough to play a Big Ten football under Hoke. So that's the difference right there, and right now, how about me at all? <clears throat> I think, though, what you kind of have circled, and I agree with it, is that all these things we talk about, you know, a good pedigree, a good resume, ties to your program, and Urban certainly has those ties to Ohio State. Um, all these things are necessary, but none of them are sufficient by themselves. You need all these things at once going for you to succeed at an Alabama or a Texas or a Michigan or Ohio State. Uh, that's that's the very high bar you have to meet. Well, it seems like Michigan certainly has has things at least going in the right direction now with Jim Harbaugh. Um, I guess we'll see how the next season or two plays out. But uh, those were some fascinating years of Michigan football with Rich Rodriguez and Brady Hoke. And, and John U. Bacon, I uh, appreciate you coming on and, and talking with us and sharing your insight on those years. Yeah, my pleasure, Bill. And it shows you this also. It uh, doesn't matter what I say. It takes years to get to the penthouse and about two years to go back to the outhouse. That, you know, no matter how consistent a program is or how good you think it is or how solid, it can happen to any program at any time. So, heads up. Thanks, John. All right. Thank you, Bill. We are joined now by Kirk Bowles. He is a columnist for the Austin American Statesman down in Austin, Texas. He's been covering the Longhorns since 1973, so he's the perfect man to talk to about Texas football. Kirk, I appreciate you uh, taking some time to talk to us. Thanks, exactly. So uh, we, we know the premise here. We're trying to figure out if, if Ohio State could, could ever take a downturn the way some major programs across the, across the country have done. Um, it seems like Texas is, is in a little bit of that right now with, with back-to-back losing seasons, um, something that's been pretty rare in that program uh, throughout its history. So I guess before we get into maybe how that's happened, um, perhaps you could give us a little bit of a refresher um, of, of, of what's been going on the last two years. Um, Charlie Strong takes over for Mac Brown. 2014, they go six and seven. 2015, they go five and seven. So, what's what's the vibe of the program right now? And, and from your vantage point, I guess how how did this happen with Texas, where they've had back to back losing seasons? Well, it's it's pretty simple actually. Um, 
take the background and got a little complacent after they had a great run in the mid to late uh, 2000s. They won the national championship in 2005. And that was their first title in 35 years. You had to go back to 1970, uh, the last time Texas won a national championship. So they, they got back to the national title game in 2009 and was playing Alabama, and a lot of us thought Texas had the better team and probably would have won that game, but Cole McCoy, their outstanding quarterback, uh, who set an NCAA record for wins, uh, got hurt for his shoulder and neck on the fifth play of the game, and ended up losing that game in 2009, uh, the Rose Bowl, and they haven't been the same since, and I think even Mac Brown said they were a little complacent that following year, 2010, probably feeling a little sorry, kind of having a pity party for themselves after the loss in Alabama, and they had a 5-7 and seven record. And then that kind of created kind of a tailspin that they still haven't been able to correct. And the last six years, they've got a 41-35 record, and I think recruiting slipped under Mac Brown toward the end. They had uh, very well-documented quarterback problems. They haven't had an offensive lineman even drafted since 2008. And then Charlie took over two years ago and, and slowly rebuilt the talent level, but he still hadn't gotten enough traction to put a winning product on the field. So when we're looking at this, we, we, we kind of narrowed it down to basically four categories, and there are more than that, but we, we picked out four that, that could potentially lead to um, to some kind of downturn for a major program. One of those is sanctions, and that's not really applicable to Texas. Um, that's correct. But uh, one you touched on is, is the recruiting. Um, and obviously Texas, is, I mean, you can have arguments about the most talent-rich states in the country. If Texas isn't one, it's 1A. Um, so for, for the University of Texas to, to have um, lulls in recruiting or, or, or some, some – um, some bad luck, I guess, in recruiting, like you said, they had at, at the end of Mac Brown's tenure. How, how does that kind of play out, uh, particularly when you're in such a talent-rich state like Texas Texas is? I think, I think sometimes, uh, as I said, the staff can get a little lazy or complacent and just start going after the, the five-star, the four-star players they see on the recruiting list and maybe don't do their due diligence and do enough homework and research to get the type of players that, you know, winning really means something to them. They also had some, uh, a lot of staff changes. Uh, Will Muskamp was the defensive coordinator in 2009, and he was the head coach in waiting. And I think a lot of people thought uh, he would take over for Mac after that season. In fact, sources told us that, that Mac had basically agreed to step down after that game. Well, that didn't happen, and then, Muschamp ended up going to Florida and started his own head coaching career. So they had some some instability uh, on the coaching staff, but you know a lot of it goes back built to just they've just dropped the ball on the quarterback position. You know they were kind of spoiled at the position because you know the last 10, 12 years they had gone from Major Applewhite to Chris Sims to Vince Young to Colt McCoy. And even though none of them won the Heisman Trophy, you know, all of them, except Applewhite, at least made it to the NFL level. And Vince Young was obviously a spectacular player. He and Colt McCoy both finished second in the Heisman Trophy winner. So, and they also weren't very lucky. They got Garrett Gilbert, who was a USA Today number one player of the year, 
a quarterback, and he didn't pan out. And because they kind of put their eggs in that basket, they fell short miserably at the position. And then they didn't go after Johnny Manziel for maybe some off-the-field reasons. They didn't go after RG3, you know, an hour and a half away at Conference Cove. They didn't offer Andrew Luck, who might have considered uh, Texas had, you know, they not, you know, sold themselves out for Garrett Gilbert. So I think that was a big part of it. You can point to the quarterback and the offensive line position and recruiting quite more than any other bill. And um, I think another thing that, that maybe factors into the recruiting as well, and, and this is sort of as we explore whether or not this could happen to Ohio State, that the built-in advantage that Ohio State has compared to most other major programs is that Ohio State is the only Division One power in its state, and it's a very talent-rich state in its own right. Texas obviously is not in that case. There's five Division One programs who are, who are going pretty well right now. Um, when you think about Baylor and A&M and even Houston's coming up a little bit. Um, do you Don't think TCU? Yes, I'm sorry. I know right. I was forgetting one. Um, yeah, they're putting up. So, how much of a factor do you think that's been as as Texas has gone through these back to back losing seasons? That the programs around them in its own state are sort of on the up. Oh, that, that's a big factor in all this because I forget what the count is ten or eleven. You know, maybe up to twelve Division One uh, athletic program in the state of Texas. Even though it is a huge state, you know all those are, are kind of kind of on the way up. Houston's trending up. Baylor has been up until their latest sexual assault scandal. Uh, TCU has been trending in a positive way. Uh, Texas Tech has had, had great success under Mike Leach, and they're still having a little trouble finding their way in their fifteenth grade. But all those schools, by and large, are doing very well. And then that doesn't even account for all the schools that come into the state of Texas and recruit. And now that A&M is in the SEC, uh, we're seeing more influence of SEC recruiting in the state of Texas because they're playing A&M. And not that they weren't recruiting them before, especially teams like Arkansas and LSU and Oklahoma right outside Texas borders. But, but yeah, the fact that so much... uh, uh, so many other programs are on the way up. It's definitely uh, taken some of the marquee talent away from Texas. And the last thing I wanted to touch on you with is um, is the coaching aspect. And, and Ohio State was very close, I think, to, to finding itself in a similar situation to what we're talking about when they had Luke Fickle as the interim coach in 2011 after Jim Trestle's uh, resignation. Um, but after that interim season where they had a losing season, Urban Meyer sort of falls out of the sky. And obviously that's a very advantageous position for Ohio State to be in. Um, right. when, when Texas loses Mac Brown, did they get the higher right with Charlie Strong? And maybe it's not fair to ask that question right now because Coach Strong's only uh, just now beginning his third year in Texas. But from your vantage point, do you think that they made the right hire in bringing in Coach Strong? Well, it is. I don't know if it's fair or not, but a lot of fans of me are asking that question. And, and at a place like Texas, you ask that question almost immediately, if not daily. You know, and that remains to be seen. The fact that the Charlie's, you know, gone 11 and 14 and it's kind of picked up or not picked up exactly where background left off, uh, you know, gives uh, doubters and critics a lot of ammunition. And we're still waiting to see if Charlie can duplicate what he did at Louisville here in Texas. And he has in living rooms. He has them on the football field yet. He's at uh, 
years. Uh, they brought 29 signees last year, and that included four not transfers, but they were Baylor recruits that were released from uh, their letters of intent. And, and that is huge because they got a great receiver and a couple of offensive linemen uh, that were Baylor defections, and they picked up a transfer from LSU and a kicker, a senior graduate transfer. So he, he does a job recruiting. We don't know about him as a game day coach and the decisions that can make or break a coach. He's, he's got a great personality. I think he's been embraced by the state of Texas and the Longhorn Nation, but he hasn't been able to get over the hump. They've had, had two embarrassing seasons. Didn't even go to a bowl game last year. They've had four blowout losses of 30 points or more. So a lot of people are going to be pointing to the opener against Notre Dame as the barometer on uh, where the program is now. So uh, I think Charlie can be the answer, and I still think he can get it done here, but it remains to be seen whether he will or not. All right, that's Kirk Bowles. He's a columnist from the Austin American Statesman down in Texas. Kirk, we appreciate you uh, sharing, sharing some of your insight on, on the Texas football program. As we continue our discussion about power programs around the country who have taken a, a downturn, uh, we turn to the University of Alabama and welcome on Kevin Skarbinski. He's a columnist from AL.com and Alabama Media Group. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Crimson Tide. Uh, Kevin, thanks for taking some time to join me. Glad to join you, Bill. So uh, I think people, um, when they think of Alabama, I'm, there might be a large portion of the country who doesn't even know what Alabama was like um, sort of in the decade before Nick Saban got there because they've been so good. Um, so recently, uh, but in those years, maybe from from I guess between Gene Stallings and and Nick Saban, which we're talking about 1997 to around 2006, um, there were some lean years and some things going on in Alabama. Um, ten seasons, four losing seasons, three different head coaches. Um, so before we dive into specifics, I guess um, could you maybe give me a little overview of of what the ten years between Gene Stallings and Nick Saban were like at the University of Alabama? Well, it was definitely a decade of darkness in, in terms of Alabama's history. And, and you mentioned three coaches. You left out the, uh, the uh, inimitable Mike Price, right. who was who was coached there for about a minute and a half until he enjoyed his time in the spotlight a little too much and, and never did get to coach a game with the Crimson Tide, got fired, uh, and they had to hire Mike Shula in, in a very unusual time of the year. And, and really, that was the heart of the problem. You know, they also went through NPA probation with severe sanctions that, that set them back as well. But it was, in essence, hiring one wrong coach after another that led to that, that, that decade of darkness. And even in the midst of that, the power of, of Alabama football uh, was visible because every one of those coaches who actually coached games, not including Mike Rice, had one 10-win season. Uh, Mike DuBose, uh, who clearly was in over his head, learning on the job, uh, won an SEC championship and beat Steve Spurrier twice in the same year, which still may be the most uh, bizarre fact in Alabama football history, or SEC football history for that matter, that Mike DuBose, a team coached by Mike DuBose, could beat a team coached by Steve Spurrier at Florida twice in the same year, once in the SEC championship game. So it, it really was just one bad hiring decision after another that, that was at the root of all those problems. And that is an interesting point you brought up because some of the other programs we're exploring with this, um, Michigan and Texas, for example, 
when they had their downturns, you know, they were talking uh, multiple losing seasons in a row, and it seems like that even for all the troubles that Alabama had during that decade, that never really happened. Like you said, all the guys who coached had had at least one um, pretty successful season doing that with with um, pretty significant scholarship reductions, some of them too. So um, I guess I guess we'll we'll segue that into one of the things we want to explore in this is is recruiting and how that. Um, impacts uh, how a Power 5 program, top-of-the-line program, takes a downturn. Um, so in that decade um, that we're talking about with Alabama, with everything that was going on and the messes that the coaching hires were and things like that, was was the recruiting still at a high level, or did that take a dip as well? They, they still brought in top talent. Now, they didn't do it at the level that Nick Saban has done since he got to Tuscaloosa. Uh, he, he set a new standard in terms of high-level recruiting year after year after year. But you had guys like Sean Alexander, uh, one of the best running backs in Alabama and SEC history. Uh, Chris Samuel blocking for him, uh, won an Allen Trophy. They, they, were the, they were the heart of that 1999 Alabama team under Mike DuBose that did win the SEC championship and did beat Spurrier in Florida twice. So th- there was never a – it was never a, a time when Alabama didn't have talent. There was – there were years in that stretch that they didn't have the talent across the board at every position that they do now and they have had under Saban. And, 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 but there were players, for example, here's a good example of where Alabama was in that time. You mentioned the probation. Uh, February 1st, 2002, they got hit hard by the NCAA. They got a two-year postseason ban, and they were docked 21 scholarships over a three-year period. And, of course, when you have that situation – current players, because of the two-year postseason ban, the, the current juniors and seniors on the, in, in that program were able to transfer and play anywhere else immediately. None of them did. And I don't believe they lost any recruits. Because there are players in this state, in particular, who just grow up wanting to play for Alabama. And they will go to Tuscaloosa regardless of who the coach is, regardless of uh, any negative circumstances like a probation that's going to keep you out of postseason for two years. They're going to play for Alabama, and, and that's been the case forever at that program, and that's part of the power of that program. Uh, it's just has such tradition and history, and fandom gets passed down from father to son for generations. Um, so Alabama always has had talented players, and they did during that period. They just didn't always have them at every position across the board. That's interesting because I, I think as we explore whether or not this could happen to Ohio State, that, that Ohio State is in a similar position, I think, like, even if, if um, they had a string of bad hires like Alabama had, they're still in a, a position as the power in their state in a very talent-rich um, area that I think people would still want to come to Ohio State. So it begs the question if it could actually ever happen um, because downturn has different definitions for different programs. Obviously with Alabama, it was a few losing seasons and sort of some black marks on the program, but never to the point where it was um, not a, a, a dominant force in college football. Um, but let's focus then on, on the, the, the bad hire aspect of this, because I think that's the most interesting part when you explore Alabama. So Gene Stallings uh, wins, a, wins a national championship. Uh, 1996, he's out. 1997, Mike Dubose comes in, as you said. What happened, I guess, um, to, to start this chain of, of Dubose, Franchione, Mike Shula, the, and Price as well, I guess you mix in there, Um how, how did Alabama make so many mistakes in hiring coaches in succession like that? Well, DuBose is a perfect example of letting the fans hire a coach. And that's essentially what Alabama did. Bob Bachrach 
who was a very unpopular athletic director, and some people still blame him for uh, pushing Gene Stallings out the door. I've always maintained Gene Stallings was too smart, too smart, too strong to let anyone push him around if he didn't want to be pushed around. But but Bob Brown got that that mantle, and then essentially Alabama fans flooded the fax machines. And this will date uh, that time period. They flooded the fax machines in the football building. And, and basically said, we want Mike DuBose as the head coach. He was the defensive coordinator. He was a former Alabama player. He was a longtime defensive line coach who was outstanding at that position. Had only been a coordinator for one year, and they weren't very good on defense by their standards in 96, even though uh, they went to the SEC championship game and lost to Florida. But DuBose was basically hired by acclamation, and he was not ready for the job. He was in over his head. He was not a strong leader. There was all kinds. Of, there has been a lot of uh, dissension, even on stalling staff, and that continued and got worse under Dubose. So he never really had his hand firmly uh, on the program. He didn't control his assistant coaches. They 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 got into some shady recruiting, which led to the led to the NCAA probation that they were hit with in February of two thousand two, uh, and and so. You know, he had some highlights. He also had too many lowlights, and really the lowest light of all, and this says something about the program at the time, you know, we, we joked about Mike Price, but Mike DuBose had his own scandal while he was the head coach at Alabama. In the summer of 99, came out, right before fall camp, actually, he finally admitted to something he denied, that he had an improper relationship with his secretary. And a lot of Alabama fans wanted him fired at that point. Alabama decided to keep him. And then he shocked everyone by winning the SEC championship that year. And so they kept him around for another year, and then they went 3-8. and eight. So they didn't fire him for the improper relationship. They fired him for losing too many football games. And, and that, was, uh, that, that showed the error of, again, letting the fans hire the coach. And then they went the opposite direction after DuBose. They, they hired someone from outside the family because that had seemed to be, in many people's minds, a requirement to be the Alabama coach that you had to have played or coached for Alabama and or Bear Bryant at some point in your career. Dennis Franchoni was outside, was a clear outsider, never felt comfortable in Tuscaloosa, and he bolted after two years for Texas A&M, even though he had done some good things. He actually, this is a strange footnote in Alabama history, Franchoni, when he was in Alabama, beat Nick Saban and LSU 31 to nothing hmm. in Baton Rouge in 2002. But at that point, Franchoni already had one toe out the door looking towards College Station and the Texas A&M job. Not that everyone knew it at the time. So I guess we'll, we'll wrap up with, with, I guess, just kind of the impact of, of that decade. And obviously Nick Saban turned things around and won multiple championships and has Alabama at the top of college football now. So do Crimson Tide fans, I mean, do they think about that time before Saban? Um, is, it, is it a black mark in the history of Alabama or is it kind of all kind of water under the bridge now with what Saban's been able to accomplish? It's, it's almost as if, in the minds of many Alabama fans, I get the impression they think out, there, there was no Alabama football between Bear Bryant and Nick Saban. <laughs> and they might remember they might remember Gene Stalling uh, uh, occasionally, but uh, but Saban, what he's done has been so unprecedented, even for that program, that they, they certainly don't want to reflect on what happened the decade before. But what? But I think the lesson of that that period, though. After they hired DuBose, who'd not been a head coach, they hired Franchoni, who'd never been a coach at a power program, and then they hired Mike Shuley in the breach, who'd never been a head coach himself. That led to a determination among their power brokers. They were going to go out and hire a proven champion.
championship head coach. They were not going to make that mistake for the fourth straight time. They were going to go get a, a, a proven guy, and that's what led to the search for Saban. And they, they basically, while there was a detour to Rich Rodriguez, and that's a whole other story, uh, Saban was the target from the start, and they weren't going to take no for an answer. And they got their man, and you see what's happening. All right, we, uh, we appreciate the uh, Alabama history lesson. Uh, Kevin Skarbinski of AL.com and Alabama Media Group, thanks so much for joining us. Enjoy it, Bill. Ari Wasserman here, um, starting off on the next edition of our continued exploration of whether or not Ohio State is the most indestructible college football program in the country. Uh, joining us for this edition to take a closer look at USC is legendary former LA Times columnist Chris Dufresne, who now has started his own venture called TMGSports.com, the media guides. Um, Chris, thanks so much for taking a few uh, minutes out of your day to talk to us. Well, thanks a lot. I, am, I don't know if I'm legendary, but I am former LA Times, so at least half of that is, is correct. We'll give him the legendary. Um, <laughs> So what we've basically been doing, Chris, is we've been trying to analyze and discuss whether or not Ohio State's situation from a recruiting standpoint, a geography standpoint, a coaching standpoint is one of the most indestructible uh, programs in college football. And we've done this by kind of analyzing the fact that Ohio State, unlike many of the other legendary programs, there's that word again, uh, around the country have been down at some point, but the Buckeyes have somehow kind of avoided that. Um, you know, if you look at Notre Dame, Texas, USC, at a, you know, to a certain extent, um, Florida, Notre Dame, I think I said Notre Dame already, but basically every program you can think of has had moments of being down. And at this point, USC yeah. is not what it was in the you know 2005 Pete Carroll era, and I was just wondering. I mean, obviously there were sanctions and a, a really good coach left, but what your kind of diagnosis of why that happened to USC is? It's uh, it, it, it's it's very interesting. It's a very, as you know, it's a very precarious thing. You know, le- dynasties, legacies, and those sort of things. When you think about it, um, you know, USC was a fourth and two against Texas in the national title game. If they stop Texas, they win their third straight national title, 35 straight wins. Pete Carroll, you know, and you wonder, you know, well, what, what what comes after that? Um, what happened was they lost that game. You know, the Reggie Bush thing kind of exploded, and, uh, and, and it sort of deteriorated from there, and they're still recovering from that. Um, but these are precarious things, and that's why, as you mentioned, if you when you have a stability um, uh, like Ohio State, uh, it uh, it is sort of rather remarkable. Even I, you know, even the Alabamas went through a low periods you know, when they had uh, you know Mike DeBose and, uh, and Mike Shula were there was coaching, but that was too tied to a program, you know, probation, and probation is usually the biggest killer for for tradition. Um, and I thought after all that happened with the Jim Trestle stuff and Tattoo Gate at Ohio State, I thought that this was Ohio State's moment, that they were going to go into a slide that typically accompanies that sort of thing. But but they didn't. And, and the reason they didn't is they went out and they made the big move for one of the, you know, the greatest coaches of his generation. Um, and that sort of stopped it in his tracks. I mean, once you get past the initial uh, shock of what uh, the Trestle era and how it ended, um, 
it's uh, you, you get a guy like that, you can take that can stop a lot of negative momentum, and that that's what happened there. We've kind of diagnosed that four things can happen to a program to stop them from being uh, in dynasty mode. I think one is NCAA sanctions, which is obvious. Two is recruiting. Um, And three is kind of subsidiary of recruiting, which is other teams moving in on your territory. And then four is bad hires. So with USC specifically, obviously they had the NCAA violation. They lost their head coach, much like Ohio State did with Trestle. Luckily for Ohio State, Urban Meyer just fell out of the sky, but who would have knows what would have happened to the program after a six and seven year if they would have hired a guy like Bo Pelini. Uh, you know, nothing against him, but when you get the best coach, or you know what I mean, that's that's a huge deal. So, for USC's standpoint, did you think that they also kind of fell victim to a few of the other things on that list? I know they've been recruiting at a high level, but bad hires maybe, and, and other teams yeah. maybe moving in on their Los Angeles, Southern California territory. Well. to you that USC in the 2000s when Pete Carroll really had things going might have been the most powerful dynasty college football has ever seen for those four or five years. Does yeah, it- especially, since, yeah, especially since he was the fifth choice. He is, that's why I talk about how some of it is his luck and some, sometimes it just falls in your lap. The, the, the big time programs I think benefit from you know, getting that, that sort of uh, the woodworks 
they'll all come back clamoring for media whatever field passes. Uh, that happens at you know Miami, USC, Alabama. Uh, they, those dominant programs, they even in the down years, they're they're just always like you know simmering volcanoes. They just uh, it, it, it's it's there for the taking if the right the right person comes along and and, and, and grabs it. Chris, we've looked at. Um Michigan, we've looked at Texas, um, and you know, part of the distinction of what we talk about when we say down are back-to-back seasons of being less than 600 in, in winning percentage, and USC doesn't quite fit that mold uh, because they haven't been terrible any of these years, and I was just wondering, uh, nine and three type seasons, how would you maybe gauge where USC is right now? Are they getting too much of a hard time because because they were so dominant in the 2000s, or is this unacceptable period for them? Like, where what is USC right now in the in the eyes of Los Angeles Trojan backers? Um, well, they're a bit, you know, uh, flummoxed, I would say, or perplexed. They think they think they should have. They think Nick Saban should be their coach, or Urban Meyer should be their coach. Just uh, Blaine Kiffin. A lot of people were dissatisfied that they kind of went in house, uh, really. Free Dufresne with TMGSports.com. Thanks so much for your time, Chris. We really appreciate you taking a, a few moments out of your busy day to enlighten us a little bit about USC. All right. I love, love talking about these sort of issues. It's fun. So that's it. That's how you can ruin your college football program. It wasn't so bad, was it? Uh, thanks again to those guys, John U. Bacon, Kirk Bowles, Kevin Skarbinski, and Chris Dufresne for taking some time out of their busy schedules 
uh, at a very busy time of the year for college football writers to, to share their insight on what went wrong at those programs. Um, Ohio State's had a good run. It's been, like I said, nearly a century since Ohio State has had back-to-back losing seasons. Uh, there's a lot of things that factor into that. We've covered that this week, and I hope you've checked it out at cleveland.com slash OSU. Uh, there is also a football game this week. We did, we did not ignore that. Uh, there's plenty of coverage on the Buckeyes uh, this season, uh, not about how they could possibly be bad, about this season and this game coming up on Saturday against Bowling Green uh, at noon in Ohio Stadium. So we hope you check that out too. Again, it's all at cleveland.com slash OSU. Uh, this has been a, a special edition of our Buckeye Talk podcast that you can follow uh, on iTunes. If you search out Buckeye Talk, you'll find us there. Please uh, subscribe and comment and let us know what you think of the podcast. And we'll talk to you guys next week. Uh, so for Ari, who helped out, uh, I'm Bill Landers from Cleveland.com. Thanks for listening.